Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Another episode of Nightlight Part 2. He's back. Jim Willis is our guest tonight. He was Barbara's guest a couple weeks ago discussing his latest publication, Censoring God. Jim had to be scheduled like three times that week, so this is like his like the seventh coming. Uh, but you, you can only find two archives. You know, I think the first show you know, produced, uh, we only got to Ken Quinehawks from UFOs to unicorns before we got booted off the air. So I produced Nightlight's uh, shortest show. Uh, I can add that to some of my other accomplishments over my nearly three-year tenure. Uh, like I had... My guests nearly crashed the switchboard with her singing bowls. I have the most banned culinary art shows on the Blog Talk network. The musicians uh, get uh, guest suggestions drive Barbara crazy. Uh, then I was banned from producing the rescheduled show, and that didn't happen. Then a secret time had to be established for a private recording, but that one happened. So <laughs> then Jim said something similar happened to uh, another net while well, he was a guest on another network. So is Jim making the authorities nervous with too much of that truth getting out there? So uh, Jim is a recently retired minister theological or professor or tour guide and you know, we're going to hear a lot more um hi jim how you doing i'm doing real well mark good to be with you i'm glad i'm i'm, I'm glad we're together finally it's been a crazy month for cancellations yeah. and postponements and weird things happening oh well uh, we're only four minutes into an hour and 20 minute long or a 120-minute-long uh, show, so uh, 
<laughs> yeah, there's there, there's still plenty of time for things to go wonky. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it 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 gets really it gets really crazy because uh, not only have we had these, I, I think this is the seventh or this this is the seventh show, but I've had six uh, earlier interviews this month that have all been either canceled or postponed because of technical difficulties. And I just heard last night from a friend of mine, I sent him a copy of Censoring God uh, a month ago. It's a tradition of mine. I always send him a copy of my latest book when it comes out. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was been waiting and waiting and waiting, and he never got it. The post office gave me a tracking number. I checked out the tracking number, and it said it was delivered, but he never got it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really beginning to to uh, you know get a little paranoid about this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, t- t- um, I don't know. You know, we're you know, we're gonna get into here in a minute. Uh, you know, you're yeah, you were a, a fundamentalist uh, a Christian. Yeah, there's some stuff in censoring God that uh, I don't, I don't, maybe not be drawing down the lightning bolts, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. You get it's. Uh, ruffling a few feathers out there so well you know and it's really crazy because there's really nothing in that book that is uh, is new um theologians right. and uh professors such as myself who taught comparative religion we've all known about this stuff ever since the discovery of the dead sea scrolls in uh in 47 and the uh nag hammadi scriptures in egypt in 1945 so it's it's not like it's information that is um uh you know new and startling or even uh, you know uh, you know at all dangerous or anything like people have known about it it's just that it's the kind of information that hasn't filtered down through to the the person in the pew um it hasn't filtered down to the people many people who swear by the bible and yet have never read it or uh, who go to church every Sunday uh, but have very rarely heard these things uh, because a lot of it has been relegated to what I like to call the conspiracy of silence. Um, It's uncomfortable in some corners. And so what happens is the people in authority, whether they are uh, pastors or teachers or or writers, uh, kind of just don't talk about it. And so because they don't talk about it, uh, people don't hear about it. So it comes as a surprise, as something that's brand new. Uh, I've been accused of rewriting history, and uh, the the person who said that to me uh, was not aware that I was simply repeating a, a theory that's been around since 19, uh, oh, 1936 or 37, I think it was, about the um, uh, you know multiple authors who wrote the book of Genesis. Um, for some reason, it just hits to the core of uh, not necessarily what people believe, but what they want to believe. And I think that says more about us as a people than probably anything. Um, we're very comfortable uh, believing out what what is comfortable believing in. Somebody once said, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we are not entitled to our own facts. And it seems to me that getting the facts out there is the most important thing. But as we're seeing in the area of politics and the area of archaeology 
uh, in the area of physics. Um, a lot of it, uh, uh, of these different groups, they have their own brand of fundamentalism. Uh, people who just don't want to um, accept the, the facts that might overturn the apple cart when those very facts might be the truth that can set us free. Yeah. Jim, you just mentioned okay, uh, the truth shall set us free. Uh, the fact, uh, just you know, these are just facts that yeah. Um, yeah. have been around for a long time, and you know, when you were a guest with Barbara a couple weeks ago, um, she gets the prestigious job. But but it's kind of boring, oh, yeah. Just premiering <laughs> an author's latest publication. Yeah, uh, yeah. You just you just want to you know, like ha- have uh, three books uh, sent to me and said, oh, yeah, hey, just connect themes from all three books, and yeah, yeah we'll have a good show in, in a couple sure. weeks. So sure. Oh, yeah, sure, no 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 problem. I'll just you know, crank, crank up his three books right now so but when you know, people uh are reading or, or well uh the three books were going to be working and yet again and yet again <laughs> Are you kidding? No, Mark just dropped off, but he'll be back. He'll be back. Okay. Um, Actually, um, you know, I I have to say that, you know, after talking with you, I have so many questions about Enoch and all sorts of things. Um, Oh, so so you're you're filling in for Mark right now? I am. I am. I catch on. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This. This long distance stuff is really fun. I, I, <laughs> you just never know for sure what's happening. We're but I can't believe Mark. Space. Mark just lost. Mark lost his um, his uh, phone connection, huh? He did, but he'll be back. Okay. Um, but I but but I want to talk to you about Enoch because Enoch figures in so much of the stuff, and we never really talked about Enoch. Um, yeah. Yeah. So why is his book so important? Well. Yeah. Enoch is a mystery figure. Uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, in, in any you know anybody who's listening can, can grab the, um, the their, their uh, Bible off a shelf, and they can go to that old um, that old group of uh, uh, genealogies that we used to call the begats. So and so was born. So and so lived a certain number of years. So and so begat his son. So and so, and then. He lived a number of years, and then he died. And those genealogies were used um, by a lot of uh, you know fundamentalist scholars going way, oh way back to 1400s actually. With you know, and and even um, Bishop Usher took those genealogies and from them figured out that according to the Bible, the Earth uh, is about 6,000 years old. And it also gave the year of Noah's flood, and it, uh, Bishop James Usher was able to use those to go back and pinpoint the day of creation, which was in October of, uh, I think it was 4004 B.C. And on the basis of that, um, there are many, many thousands of people in the world today 
who will accept the words of the Bible over the science and archaeology and anthropology and biology, and they will say that the earth is very young um, and uh, that God created the world 6,000 years ago, 4004 B.C. in October. Well, Enoch was one of those who was mentioned in there, except it was a very strange mention. All we know about him, according to the Bible, is that uh, he was born, he became the... Uh, uh, the great grandson, the great grandfather of Noah, and he lived a certain number of years. He had a son uh, whose name was Methuselah, and, mm -hmm. uh, and then Methuselah had a son whose name was Lamech, and Lamech became the father of Noah. Uh, Methuselah, uh, Enoch's uh, grand, e e Enoch's son, was the one who was supposed to be the oldest man who ever lived. He lived 969 years. And then he died, and that was the very same year of the flood, according to Bishop Usher in the genealogies of Genesis. But the strange thing about this whole story is that according to the book of Genesis, Enoch never died. It said he lived so many years, and then he was not, for God took him just before uh, the story of Noah's flood. Enoch was supposed to have been taken just before the flood. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all we knew about him from the Old Testament, and there's only one other reference to him, and that was in the book of Jude uh, in the New Testament, that little book of Jude, which is the second-to-last book in the Bible. And it talked about uh, Enoch being a prophet who was prophesying about the coming flood, and then God took him. Now, just from the Bible, people decided that this Enoch was a kind of a type or a symbol of what was going to happen at the end of days. Jesus in the book of Matthew said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So we go back to read about what happened in the days of Noah, and we read about that there were three categories of people who uh, lived just before Noah and during the great flood. There was, first of all, all the people who perished in the flood. Uh, the people who were wickedness was found in them, and they had been uh, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair and that they had had children by them, and those children were the Nephilim or the giants, and they all perished in the flood. And then, of course, there was the group of uh, people who went through the flood. That was Noah and his family. They were carried through the flood. But then there was Enoch, who was taken up to heaven before the flood came. And about in the uh, 19, late 1930s or 1940s, there arose in Christianity the idea that uh, remembering those words of Jesus, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, they went back and they saw that all of these three were types of people who are alive on the earth today. There were uh -huh. the people who were going to be per who are going to perish in the uh, the the great uh, ending of time, the Battle of Armageddon. And then, of course, there were those who were going to pass safely through the great tribulation time uh, of, the, of the Battle of Armageddon. But then there was Enoch who was taken before, and there developed the idea that he became a symbol of all those who would be taken up to heaven before the great tribulation, the final great tribulation, and the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, that was where the idea of the rapture came from. Rapture is from a Latin word meaning to snatch up. And so a lot of evangelical scholars today will read about Enoch, and they will say that uh, he is a type of those who are going to be taken up before the Great Tribulation, are going to be raptured or 
taken up bodily into heaven. And then is going to come the great tribulation, which is going to destroy uh, sinners on the earth. But there will be a portion who will go through that tribulation safely, just as Noah did, and come out the other side when Jesus shall return and uh, issue in, into the thousand year or the millennial reign of Christ. And until 1945, really, that's all we, 47 rather, that's all we knew about Enoch. We knew that the people who had been writing uh, about him had, had, uh, um, had known about Enoch because in the Old Testament they mentioned him and in the book of Jude, the New Testament re- uh, mentioned him. But all we had was little snippets about this mysterious character named Enoch. Well, in 1770, that all changed. Everything changed. Uh, James Bruce, who was an Englishman, uh, visited Ethiopia for three years. And upon his return to to England, upon his return to London, he gave an astounding uh, announcement he had discovered an old manuscript that was written not in Hebrew, but written in Gez, which was the sacred language of Ethiopia. And it turned out to be a translation of that long-lost book of Enoch, purportedly written by Enoch himself, uh, which the Old Testament writers had read, and which obviously the New Testament uh, uh, writers had read, because they both mentioned Enoch, but nobody else knew about him until 1947. And then when the book was translated from the Ethiopian Gez in, uh, into English, uh, all of a sudden we could read Enoch, and it was a wild story. Enoch seems to be some kind of a, of a shaman who had out-of-body experiences and was taken up into heaven, and he talked about uh, why God sent the flood, and he talked about the um, the mating of angels and, of and and uh, women here on earth to produce the Nephilim, and uh, he mentioned some of the this mysterious group called the Watchers, who were supposed to be watching over Earth, uh, guardian angels, and even mentioned some of them, and they had names like Michael, who we call Michael, and Gabriel, which we call Gabriel. And uh, others, he mentioned seven of them, who were the watchers, who were supposed to be watching over earth. As as a matter of fact, in almost any Christian church today, if you go in and look, open their hymn book, you will find a hymn called Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. And that is a hymn that was actually sung to this group of good angels called Watchers. Uh, and most Christians today, when they sing that hymn, it used to be one of my favorite hymns. We used to sing it often. Ye watchers and ye holy ones, bright seraphim and cherubim, uh, praise his glory, alleluia. And uh, it was written to these angels, which appear to be, according to Enoch, uh, extra, well, I don't want to say extraterrestrial, but that's what they really were, because they were not of this earth. They were from a different dimension. And they seem to be angels who, who uh, the, the the good angels over God who were watching over us. And their purpose, uh, the reason that they were called angels, their purpose was to bring messages from God to people. And the word angelos, from which we work at the word angel, actually means messenger. And apparently Enoch, uh, according to the book of Enoch, actually conversed with these people, with these watchers, and uh, eventually, before the Great Tribulation came, was taken up to heaven. And uh, it's, just, it's just a fascinating, fascinating story. 
especially when you realize that Enoch was known by other people in he known to in Muslim Muslim traditions as Idris, and he's known in Greek traditions as the god Hermes. Um, he was the one who was supposed to have invented language. He was the one who was supposed to have had the art of building, and uh, he taught the Egyptians how to do their first building. And the Egyptians credit Hermes, Idris, Enoch, the same guy with um, teaching them the lost arts of building. And that's why, to this day, for those of your listeners who might be members of the, uh, the Masonic organization, uh, they will recognize in their, a lot of their rituals and things, uh, Enoch figures very, very prominently. And he was supposed wow. to have written out the secrets of building, and then he was supposed to have buried them in the earth so they could be discovered at the last days. And, of wow. course, when Gobekli Tepe was discovered in Anatolia, which was the very same region where uh, Enoch would have lived in modern-day Turkey, when Gobekli Tepe was buried, uh, and it was announced that soon after this great, great enigmatic temple was built, uh, it was deliberately buried within a couple of hundred years, everyone began to say, was that the place that Enoch built and covered? <laughs> it's, it's quite wow. a story. It's, it's a lot of fun. It is, it is. And I think I think for a while we have Mark back. Oh, okay. Yeah, until uh, the next time I get booted off the uh, <laughs> line again. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, uh, my clock was still going. That's why I thought uh, you know, J- Jim disappeared. So I, I, I don't know what, what happened there, but uh, you know we're doing uh, a good job if uh, you, know, you get um, you know, uh, disconnected from you know, your show. It's you know the show, show's boring. Uh, just you know, you're not causing you know causing anyone to do any of that uh, their uh, critical thinking stuff. We- <laughs> well, that's okay. We we uh, um, we 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 continued on. Okay, <laughs> Barbara and well, I did. Yeah, yeah th- thanks for letting me back on my my show. But uh, <laughs> but but. Okay, yeah, Jim. You, you know, you did talk about. Uh, you know, Enoch was mentioned in uh, Jude, the books of uh, Jude and mm-hmm. Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. uh, but obviously, the people writing those two books had to. They they had to have read be, it. I mean, they had to have yeah, known yeah, about yeah, it. it. So. Yeah, we we know it was familiar uh, at least two thousand yeah. years ago, and then it yeah. disappeared. And I'm that that was one of the things that really sent me to write censoring God, because what happened was um, we we like to think that the Bible and we're taught this the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice according to the old Scottish tradition. Um, We like to think that the Bible and all holy texts, whether we're talking about the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads or uh, the Mayan texts or the Jewish scriptures or the Christian scriptures, we like to think that they come right from the mouth of God, but they they don't. Uh, There is a committee that always, or in some cases a group of committees, that stand between us and the original manuscript. And that committee put these books together often for reasons which had nothing to do with, um, uh, well, not as much to do with theology as it did politics. When uh, Constantine became the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, 
He and wanted to unite the, the Roman, uh, uh, you know, the whole nation of Rome. And it was a huge sprawling thing that went all over Europe, uh, all the way into Great Britain, all the way over Europe through Istanbul into the east. And uh, it was just a huge sprawling network down into Egypt. And uh, Constantine was converted, of course, at the famous uh, Battle of Milvan Bridge, where he was uh, theoretically saw the the cross in the sky that said, "In this uh, in this sign, you will you will conquer." And uh, Constantine became a Christian. I think probably his mother nagged him into it. She was a she was a much more <laughs> vociferous Christian than he was. But at any rate, uh, he saw in Christianity, and now we're talking about the fourth century. He saw in Christianity an opportunity to unite this far-flung empire, and he thought if he could get a universal religion, then uh, that would help cement the empire together. And so he formed two uh, two committees, the uh, Committee of Hippo in 393 CE and in Carthage in 397 and basically what they did was put together this New Testament. But in order to do that, they had to eliminate the the, uh, the books that didn't agree with their own particular bent uh, that might have kept East and West apart, and they never really did it. Uh, in Egypt, there was a sect called the Gnostics that were very powerful, but uh, and as a matter of fact, they almost uh, uh, a, a Gnostic uh, a ruler almost became the the one of the popes in 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 Italy. But the Gnostics uh, had this idea that uh, everybody could get to God straight without a, without an intermediary. That God was present within all, and that you didn't need a priest and you didn't need a church in order to contact and talk to God. Well, that didn't go over very well with Constantine at the at the uh, Council of Hippo because he wanted an intermediary. He wanted people to have to come to priests and the church because that way the priests and the church could have control over the people. So the Gnostics were banned. And not only were they banned, all of their, their scrolls were burned and destroyed. Uh, thank goodness that there were some Gnostic priests which took these Gnostic scrolls, we know them today as such books as the uh, Gospel According to Thomas or the Gospel According to Mary, uh, like the 34 other Gospels that we, besides the four that we know. They took them all, they put them in, in, uh, in, in you know, wrapped them in, in, in clay and, and everything and buried them in the desert near Nagamati, where they were discovered finally in 1945. Otherwise, we never would have known about the Gnostic Gospels. So the Gnostics were declared heretics, and they were destroyed. And now, of course, we have the problem with the East. What are you going to do with Asia? And the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, they, didn't, they had troubles with the Trinity. They believed that God was one. And Rome was busy saying, no, God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the church was split between East and West. And so they had to del- uh, get rid of a lot of the the uh, scriptures that seem to imply that that uh, God was anything but a trinity. And so that split the church. And as a result, we have this this crazy n- network uh, of right now of, of all of these different books where we actually have three different um, three different Bibles 
the Eastern Orthodox has a Bible. The Roman Catholics has, a, has their own Bible, a, a different number of books in it. And uh, Protestants have another Bible that with a different number of books. So actually, when we talk about a Bible, depending on whether you are Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Protestant, there's actually three different Bibles out there you can choose from. So it was it was done. The Bible was really put together more for political purposes. And the part that bothers me more than anything else is that these people who formed these committees, the men who formed these committees, and they were all men, there were no women on them, of course, the men who formed the committees were so adamant about it that not only did they pick out the books that they wanted in the Bible, they deliberately set out to destroy the rest of them. And why would they want to destroy them unless they were afraid that we would find their rejects? And as they destroyed all of these Bibles, all of these texts, Little did they know that up in the hills of the Dead Sea, uh, there were uh, a group of scholars up there called the Essenes who were quietly burying some of these texts, putting them in clay jars, putting them away. And little did those people who formed those committees know that all of their rejects that they had hoped were destroyed were sitting safely buried in a cave, in caves above the Great the Dead Sea, not to be discovered until 1947. Now, for the first time since 1947, we can actually go into the waste baskets of those committees and look and see what they threw away. Until 1947, it wasn't possible. And, and Jim, um, in your lost civilizations. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you do, on um, page 239, you do cover, the Gnostics believed that a bigger game was being played out by forces outside of planet Earth. Yes. Um, you, in a, a couple paragraphs earlier, you do uh, include the the passage from 1 John 5 uh, verse 19 about uh, explains why the author of uh, that passage could declare that we know we are of God and the whole world is in the hands of the evil one yes. okay, so you, you, you get some of these passages like that that uh, one from uh Ephesians is it like uh, uh, chapter six? Yes. Where it, it, the the uh, uh, spirits of the airs, or, so, so, I, I may not uh, principalities. Um, principalities you, you know, and powers in the, the heavenly places. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I, I'm, I, I didn't provide an accurate quote on that, but um, uh, well. So, yeah, thank you for correcting, oh, correcting that uh, uh, verse. Uh, but um, but but what you're doing is letting us know that you know the Gnostics uh, uh, did have an influence by discussing that uh, there were other forces. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily good that were out there in, in the world, and, and you know I think that's one of the uh, uh, this duality yes. is yeah. 
very interesting is going back to you know, the early days of uh, Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time that that um, that particular passage from First John uh, came into my 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 senses. I had read it before and read it many times growing up as a kid, but when I went to uh, seminary and uh, for my my first year in seminary, of course, we were learning Greek. And uh, about halfway through the semester, we were set. We were all given a chapter of the Bible to translate from the Greek, the original language that it was written in, from the Greek to the English. And uh, my particular passage was a homework assignment was to translate First John. And when I read that passage, uh, I remember all of a sudden it turned from an academic exercise from Greek to English into a profound theological philosophical thing the whole we know that we are of god and the whole world is in the hands of the evil one that was my introduction to gnosticism because first john has a lot of uh, gnostic influence in it um and what what were they talking about well there are two ways going back to the book of genesis and the and chapter one there are two ways to interpret that particular passage. Uh, the first is the way that almost all of us are taught here in the West. The second is a totally different interpretation, which is really a Gnostic interpretation. The way we're taught as we read First John 1, 2, and 3, or, I mean Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we all know about the Garden of Eden, and uh, Adam and Eve were one with each other. They were one with God. They were one with nature. Everything was unity. And everything was fine, of course, but then the Bible goes on, the story goes on to say that there were two trees in the garden, which uh, everything was open to humankind except for the two trees. And one, the first one was the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil is a metaphor for duality, good and evil, up and down, hot and cold, right and left. Uh, We live in a world of duality. And what the author of Genesis was was saying, of course, if if you read it historically or if you read it metaphorically, the message is the same, that Adam and Eve found themselves living in this world of duality. Now, there was another tree in the garden called the tree of life, and if they ate of the fruit of that tree, they would live forever. And this was the great temptation that the serpent, according to the book of Genesis, was supposed to have given to Eve. The serpent came down and whispered in her ear, uh, "Did God say that you were not to eat of the tree of good and of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil?" And uh, Eve, according to the book of Genesis chapter three, said, "No, we are not to eat of it. Neither are we to touch it." Well, God never said anything about touching it. He just said, "Don't eat it." So, in other words, Eve had added a little her own interpretation to what God wanted her to do. And then, when she started to do that to disagree with God, so to speak, and, and add her own interpretation to the Word of God, then at that point, the serpent was free to say, "No, that's not true. God knows that if you eat of the tree, you will become like." gods and so she ate of the tree of duality and she gave some to adam and adam ate of the tree of duality 
and they were immediately cast out of the garden. There was no more unity. Now they were separate from each other, and they realized they were different from one another, man and female, duality. They realized that they could no longer live in uh, one with nature, and from then on they had to uh, uh, earn their bread by the, by the sweat of their brow. They realized they were no more one. They were no longer one with God. As a matter of fact, there was a, a couple of angels with flaming swords placed at the Garden of Eden to keep uh-huh. them from coming back into Eden. And so we have seen in that either as a metaphor, or for those who want to read it historically, they can see it historically. But I I read it as a metaphor that what this story is telling us is that in this life, in this world of duality, we are separate from one another. That's why. We feel so alone all the time. We are separate from God, which is why sometimes we just feel so spiritually bereft. We are separate from nature, and that nature is now sometimes our enemy. And we talk about a, a war on nature in order to wrest from it the, the resources we need to live. And that's a, a, a way of saying that we are separate. Now, according to this, however, we are still taught that God saw all that he had made and it was very good and that man and woman had messed it up, uh, that we had sinned, and it was called the original sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, is how uh, Paul puts it in Romans. So the question was, how did that happen? Well, we are taught here in in traditional Christianity and in Judaism and even in, in Islam, we are taught as we interpret that story that our sin brought this about uh, and that we of our own volition and our own sin separated ourselves from all this and we are responsible for this condition and it was all brought about by the temptation of this evil serpent. So that, that, uh, that's the way we are taught. The Gnostics look at it differently. They didn't see the serpent as evil as, at all. The serpent, according to Gnostic tradition, was not bad, but good. As a matter of fact, in many different traditions, we find the serpent worshipped. And uh, what the serpent was trying to do, the serpent was the the symbolic uh, representation of the feminine, whereas uh, humankind took upon itself the, the masculine, the warlike, the violence, and everything else. Whereas the serpent tried to say, to come down here and and say, no, eat of the tree of God, you shall be as gods. But then, uh, here was the great duality, God against God, good against evil. And the evil God that caused the sin in the first place, according to this metaphor, did not want human beings to flourish and to become as gods, and so we were cast out, uh, metaphorically, of, of the garden. And in this way, the winning God was not the good God who tried to give us to eat of the tree of life. The winning God was the bad God, the one that we call the devil, or that in Gnostic tradition was referred to often as the demiurge. And according to this way of reading the Bible, the God that we worship in this Bible and in in this life is not the good God who created the earth, but it was the bad God who tempted and cast us out of Eden, who tempted us and casted us out of Eden. Uh, it's often been said that the devil, one of the devil's greatest tricks is to uh, make, believe, make humans believe he doesn't exist. 
but this trip this trick is even worse uh the devil's greatest accomplishment according to this way of looking at it the devil's greatest accomplishment was to make people believe he's god and so this gnostic tradition would say that the god that we worship in christian circles today and in jewish circles today is not the god who created the world and everything was very good but it was the god of evil it's the demiurge satan himself and we are worshiping in this way a false god that's the two different ways of reading the bible according to these two different traditions okay um since we are looking at uh the couple uh different ways to look at uh, how the Eden store is presented mm-hmm. in Genesis as you discuss it in Censoring God um, you, you also have uh, another explanation for the Eden story in your Lost Civilizations book yes. where um you are presenting the story as a maybe it's actually looking at a real historical event mm-hmm. uh can, can you give us that interpretation sure that's from- that's a totally different that's a totally different interpretation it doesn't even demand mm-hmm. um necessarily the belief in god um what that particular way of thing uh, way of looking at the bible is that the the bible metaphorically gives us a historical uh thing in other words when adam and eve were in the garden and they were one with nature it talks about uh, human beings as they first were as they first existed uh when they were uh, before technology uh pre maybe even pre stone age uh uh societies that existed in the world they ate of nature they ate of the fruits around them they lived in nature they were part of the kingdom they felt like they were one with the animals because they kind of were an animal themselves uh, but they could think and they could reason but they felt like they were one with nature and their whole life was simply involved in this uh, Edenic thing where the 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 culture I mean I mean the uh, the landscape around them provided their food and they were one with it and and uh, they must have remembered I mean of course it must have been you know uh, bad things about it but in memory much later when these stories were told that was seen as a kind of an Eden uh, uh, a perfect time and and uh, Edenic time where we were in there in the Garden of Eden. But then what happened was we discovered agriculture. The agricultural revolution came about. Uh, It happened probably first up in Anatolia in Turkey, maybe 12,000 years ago. Personally, I think it was a whole lot way before that. I think humans lost civilizations that existed way before 12,000 years ago We had invented agriculture. But our particular civilization founded in Anatolia, uh, in the nature, in, in in the landscape around uh, Gobekli Tepe, and then it spread down the Tigris and the Euphrates, and it spread over to Egypt, and the agricultural revolution it hit. And what happened? Well, uh, we discovered that we could grow our own food, 
And uh, of course, nature says that whenever uh, the uh, the food supply grows, the species that depends upon that food supply grows with it. And there was a population explosion, which is just what it says in the in the book of Genesis. There was um, men began to increase upon the earth in those days, and the first thing that uh, happened was. Uh, <laughs> Cain and Abel were born to Adam and Eve, and Cain was the one who had the garden. He was the one who went out and and, and um, worked in the fields. Abel was a, a member of the old way of doing things. He he followed the flocks. He he was a nomad. He went around and followed wherever the flocks may go. Well, what happened was Cain, the agriculturalist, killed Abel. The, the nomad, uh, agriculture and the nomadic life, they could not exist side by side. So in that first murder, we have a metaphorical rendition of something that happened in history when there was the, the war between the, the, uh, the agriculturalist and the, the herder. And agriculture won. We all know the story. The agricultural revolution won. What's the first thing that Cain did after he killed his brother? Uh, the agriculturalist one, the first thing he did was go out and build a city. And we are told in human history that shortly after the de development of agriculture, or probably along with it, the first thing we did was start to build the cities of our civilization. And then all of these different ways of, of, uh, of, of, of civilization appeared. We can read about them in Genesis. Uh, Industry with Tubalcane, the first uh, person to work in in iron, and uh, the uh, uh, Jubal, the first first musician, and uh, all the bad things are there too. All of a sudden, we have uh, bigamy in the in the Bible for the first time. Lamech went out and got two wives and bragged about it, and all of these different things. And men began to it says increase upon the earth in those days. So if we read the Bible that way. It becomes a metaphor for what is very close to how our civilization developed uh, and describes our coming of, of coming of age today. Okay. Um, since we're still on this duality theme, you know, building the uh, cities versus you know remaining a sheep herder. And yeah, right. you know, the Adam and Eve and uh, being in Eden and kicked out of it. Um, we have similar factions that have uh, encountered the same situations uh, around the world. And in your lost civilizations, uh, uh, you have a really neat section on uh, the long and short ears of Easter Island. Um, oh. I, I, I really enjoyed that uh, part of the book. Uh, uh, let's talk about you know, switch from some of the Middle Eastern. Uh, Dualities to out in the middle, like literally out in the middle of nowhere, and yeah. you get the same thing happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Easter Island is is a great example. Uh, personally, I, I I really wonder if Easter Island 
we we should review the story of Easter Island uh, in every classroom in the country today because I think Easter Island is a morality tale for us. What happened on Easter Island, on that one small island in the Pacific, is exactly the same thing that is happening right now around the whole world. What happened was the first people came to Easter Island, and uh, at first everything was great. Uh, Easter Island must have been uh, a, a fantastic place to live. Uh, it was covered with trees and and uh, plants were there and everything else. But uh, as the people continued and as their technology got more and as they began to really hurt the the uh, landscape around them, they began to chop down the trees. They uh, they couldn't grow crops anymore. As soon as that happened, they began to uh, divide into factions. And uh, there was a lot of religious symbolism going on of people trying to say, uh, if we do this religion, the gods will save us against our enemies over on the other side of the island and all that kind of stuff. And eventually they they found themselves marooned on Easter Island. They couldn't get off because there were no more trees to build boats. There were no more, um, there was was no more stuff to, you know, to make a society flourish. And uh, that's exactly what's happening in the world today, ecological disaster. What the earth is is just a a big example, a bigger example of what happened on that island so long ago. Now, that is a vastly oversimplified version of it. It's all that we have, you know, all that we have the time for. But I think it really is a great morality lesson, an ethical lesson for us today on how to live. If we don't want to go the way of Easter Island, uh, we've got to change our ways and change our ways quickly. Okay, and so how you know? Do do you think the long ear and short ear statues were some type of um well i i i think it was i think it was two separate two separate polyne- uh, two separate um uh, populations actually this goes back to thor yeah. Heyerdahl in his 1957 book uh, aku aku the secret of easter island um he believed that the uh, easter island was was settled by two groups of people uh it was called rapa nui not easter island there but they're their identity uh, is still a matter of intense debate. Uh, one group was called uh, the short ears, the, because they had regular ears like everybody else. The other, and and they they uh, you know probably came from the west. The other group was called the long ears because they artificially lengthened their ears by hanging weights in the earlobes, and he believes that those were immigrants from Peru who had arrived from the east on rafts, similar to the famous Contiki raft. And uh, he compiled a whole bunch of evidence about this. Uh, One quote that uh, I use in the book is that uh, uh, before the uh, Viracocha, who was from Peru in South America, before he appeared to the Incas, uh, the land was full of uh, chaos, I think they said, but then he left them. He traveled across the Pacific on a, on a raft similar to the Contiki that uh, Thor Heyerdahl built. And uh, behind him, he left, according to the people in Peru, uh, order and a better life. 
and they called him Viracocha, the foam of the sea. And uh, in other versions of the tale, they called him Kontiki, which is what Con- the, the name that Thor, Thor Heyerdahl used for his raft. So the short ears on Easter Island represent probably, uh, presumably rather, the, the, the Polynesians who came out in, in their outrigger canoes from the west, and the long ears celebrated uh, were, were the ones, the people from Peru who came on their rafts from the east. And they, as typically happens with human beings, when these two groups got together, uh, they may have got together at first and lived very, very handsomely together. But as the resources began to gnaw at them, each group began to say, our group is the right way. We have our own gods. We have our own religion. And we're going to fight against the other group. And uh, a tremendous uh, warfare in, in, engaged uh, uh, Easter Island. And uh, there's a lot more stories about it, but it's just a uh, a, a, a real, like I said, I call it a morality tale, and it really is, because it's the very same thing that's happening in the world today. Yeah, and you also bring up uh, another interesting point is the Moai heads, or you know, everyone's seen photos of those, um, um, the famous I think statues, a lot of the yeah. yeah, maybe a lot of people don't realize that the heads that are above uh, <clears throat> you know ground level are actually attached to full yeah. body statues. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was does that was amazing. Even even in the time of Thor Heyerdahl, it was thought that they were just heads. They are covered by like thirty, and many of these are statues are 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 uh, buried up to their heads. But some of these statues go down thirty feet into the ground. Now, yeah, how, how long does it take sediment to build up? You know, well, there you go. Deep? Exactly. How long does it take sediment to come up with thirty feet of sediment and just leave those heads above the ground? Now, in a place like Egypt where in the middle of the desert you've got the Sphinx, and that was buried up to its head. Nobody knew there was a body for a long time. But that's a right. whole different story in, in Egypt. That can happen relatively quickly with uh, after Egypt became a desert and the sands would blow and fill up and just leave the head of the Sphinx. Nobody knew there was a body. But on Easter Island, we didn't have those conditions. So what kind of years have to go by to bury a 30-foot statue up to it just its head. That take that kind of sediment sedimentary buildup takes a long time, which makes some scholars today begin to think that those statues are much much older than uh than we normally think. That this, you know, the Easter Island, the settling of Easter Island doesn't go back a thousand years or even 1500 years. They they're talking thousands upon thousands of years. Um, and it's even wondering. It's even wondered if perhaps uh, Easter Island goes back to a time when the ocean levels were much lower, and the islands around that area, which are now are all undersea, were once all above water, uh, and the whole landmass was much bigger than it was. Uh, it's just a, a, a fascinating speculation, but of course most people don't want to talk about it because it. it Flies in the face of traditional archaeology. Okay, so okay, so we, yeah, you know, we've been 
hopping around the world, looking at uh, recreating some of the committees that decide, okay, this yeah, this this book is okay for what we want to do, but the other one's a little too yeah, yeah. too freaky or something. But you know, we actually had examples of like the conquistador Christian uh, types destroying books, but there were a, a few priests who preserved a portion of what we know from the you know, uh, Mayan, uh, Aztec, Inca mm-hmm. uh, uh, cultures. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Popol Vu? Yeah, that um, we wouldn't have even known about that had not there been some uh, Spanish priests who, uh, after all of the copies they could wrap up of the Popol Vu, after they were burned, uh, there were some stories in there that just didn't uh, jibe with what the Spanish thought. Uh, but they, uh, some Spanish priests believed that there was wisdom in there that needed to be preserved. And so what they would do would be to talk to some of the elders. Now, in a, a place with oral tradition, uh, you, you, you know, the elders had tr- some, some, the traditions of tremendous uh, memory. And what they would do is just try to, uh, you know, remember what they could from the Pope of you and, and say that uh, what they wanted to do was, re, you know, recreate it and and keep a memory of it, so to speak, so that uh, it would be, uh, you know, preserved. And then, of course, this, some of these Spanish priests were risking their lives for it because if it had been found out, you know, they would have been, this is the days of the Inquisition, they probably would have been destroyed as keeping the devil's work alive. But the Popol View has uh, some unbelievable stories. It talks about people who came in, for instance, from the West, uh, and uh, and I mean from the East rather, and uh, yeah, from well from Amer- from the Americas actually. And they talk about how these people uh, from the East would come in and 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 brought civilization to the people. Uh, in Peru, on the other side, it was called Veracocha. But on this side, uh, you know, we we have a whole different uh, mythology, and uh, it talks about how these people came from the West, and they were white men, and they had beards, and uh, they had European features, and they brought civilization to the people, and they could do all kinds of fantastic things. They could sit in one place and look at something they held in their hand and talk to people who lived on the other side of the world. Now the Spaniards, that was just a plane of the devil. That was so stupid. Nobody could, nobody could sit in one room and talk to somebody who was hundreds of miles away just by looking at something that he held in his hand. Of course, they knew better, so they wanted to destroy it. Um, they had people who brought civilization and 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 told them that that they were to obey laws such as uh, 
one woman and one man, uh, you know, rather than multiple marriages and and, uh, and all this kind of thing, which was, you know, right out of the Ten Commandments and all this kind of thing. And so there were a couple of Spanish priests who began to say, well, maybe these are God's people too. But, of course, they were shouted out by the priests of the Inquisition, and, and so the Pope of View was destroyed. It, we wouldn't have known anything about it had we not had those um, far-seeing uh, Spanish priests who said to the old ones, tell us as best you can. We'll write it down and uh, try to preserve them if we can. So that's that's only thing. That's that's how we know about these things. But there were they, there were rumors there of a great civilization that was much much uh, much much older than anything that any archaeologist will accept today. That's for sure. Okay. Um... In the example you were just talking about, eh, some like a mystical sci-fi kind of interpretations that uh, of the uh, the priests' mystical interpretations of uh, the stories. Um, in your um, Akashic Field book, uh, you're talking about uh, how shaman uh, used dreams to understand uh the world, yeah. you know, we might be getting some of that kind of information from the indigenous South American cultures that you just yeah. gave us. Um, and we have uh, uh, Saint John the Divine uh, giving the. Uh, Doing the dictation of the Book of Revelation, in he, he was in a dreamlike yeah. state, yeah. some kind of trance. Uh, yeah, you, know, you have other. Uh, I, I don't like Ezekiel's wheels, pretty yep. uh, freaky as well. Uh, so you know, there, there's you know when the uh, you know priests, you know, just say the Spanish priests are you know first encountering some of these people in. Uh, yeah, you know, South America. Yeah, maybe we need to give them credit for at least understanding some of this dream stuff. But you know, it seems like people from long ago were looking at extracting some kind of meaning sure. from dreams when when they looked. I can can you tell us a little bit more about? Yeah, um, my book, uh, Quantum Akashic Field, uh, which is kind of a field guide for those who wanted to uh, do out-of-body experiences, uh, that is a much more personal book than, say, Lost Civilizations uh, or even Censoring God um, because it talks about my own out-of-body experiences. you got to understand, <laughs> for, for most of my life, I did not believe in out-of-body experiences. Um, as a minister... I had the opportunity many times to go uh, with people and be with people in the hospital 
and uh, sometimes, uh, dozens of times really, be holding their hand while they actually died and praying with them while they died. And uh, then once in a while, uh, more than three or four times, maybe five or six times even, uh, the nurses would come charging in. They would see the flat line. They would come charging in. They would kick me out of the out, out of the room, and the doctors would come in. They'd bring out the paddles, and they would you know zap the people and everything else. And some of those people who uh, were pronounced dead and were clinically dead came back to life. And they would tell me about uh, visions sometimes that they had had. They saw a great light. Or if they were Christian, they might have seen Jesus. Or if they were Jewish, they might have seen uh, Moses or Abraham. Uh, sometimes if they, they had no religion at all, but they still had the tunnel and the life review and all of those things that uh, that happened. And I'm, I frankly, I'm kicking myself right now because at the time I just didn't believe in uh, uh, near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. And so I would hear these stories, and I never told them. I never you know, dis- disavowed these things. And I said, oh, come on, your, uh, your brain was shutting down and blood was stopping and you, know, you had this vision and all this kind of thing. I didn't say any of that, of course. But as I look at it now, uh, I was very patronizing. I just didn't believe what I was seeing before my eyes. And now I wish I could go back and talk to those people, who some of whom had seen loved ones who were waiting for them. Uh, I wish I could could uh, go back and talk to them in, in greater depth. Sometimes I listened to their stories and I remembered their stories. And, uh, you know, they meant a lot to me. And I thought, well, this will help me live my life and I can help in my sermons, help other people face their own death. I think these people were actually having out-of-body or near-death experiences. And so when I retired and and came up here to go on my retreat that was supposed to last one year and so far has lasted 12, I found myself um, wondering about this myself. And I began to deliberately study out-of-body experiences. And uh, when I had my my first one, my first OBE, um, I want to tell you, it, it, was, it was just a shocker to me because I found myself identifying with so many of those other people who I've talked to. Every one of them said it's more real on the other side than it is here. Every one of them said they didn't want to come back. And now myself, I've had that experience countless times. And I want to tell you, it takes away the fear of death. I mean, I have no fear whatsoever of dying. I'm looking forward to actually without something you know too bad I'm, I'm looking forward to it like we all have to face it and and uh, from everything i can see it's a wonderful experience but as i began to have these experiences myself and to see these entities and to experience those experiences and to walk those kinds of landscapes which are totally different here i began to go back into the bible and read with a totally different thing and lo and behold I found that the Bible is full of these out-of-body experiences. And I began to think that the founders of every great religion in the world today, be it Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Mohammed, uh, the Hindu rishis, Buddha, every single one of them, I think, had a shamanic experience. And I think that is the common link that's the one ring to rule them all. That's the one link hmm. that is going to tie all of the world's religions together, is that the founders of these religions, way back at the beginning, they had this shamanic experience of leaving the body, 
and actually experiencing a totally different landscape, a totally different dimension. You can find it in the Bible uh, all over the place, Isaiah, um, and take, taken up to the third heaven. The Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians said that he actually left his, his own body, and he talks about having an out-of-body experience himself, where he actually saw the risen Christ, was taken up to heaven and heard, world, heard things that he just couldn't even put into words. Uh, Ezekiel, of course. Um, you find all of these. If, if anybody's interested in following this up, um, Jan and I have put together a video which is on my YouTube page. Uh, just look, go to YouTube and click on Jim Willis and just scroll downstream until you see me coming. Or you can go to my website and find it through my website, which is at uh, jimwillis.net. And go to that YouTube page and you'll find a whole video uh, linking together all of the religions of the world um, that talks about the beginnings of, and that unique shamanic experience. Uh, I think that is probably the one thing that cements us together as human beings more than anything else. It certainly does tie in all of the religions. The problem is that after that initial shamanic experience, whether it was Jesus uh, going up on top of the mountain and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah step out and they're all transfigured into beings of light. And Peter, James, and John saw it and wrote about it. Uh, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, he wrote about it. Um, and Mark and Luke, too. Uh, you talk about that Mount of Transfiguration and where Jesus was transformed. And two spirit guides stepped right out of the other dimension, Moses and Elijah. And what were they talking to him? They were preparing him for death. I think that we have the opportunity, every single one of us, everyone who's listening to this right now, we have the opportunity to engage in these very same out-of-body out of experiences. To meet these entities, I guarantee it'll, it will uh, completely change your life. Um, I went up a couple of years ago, I went up to the Monroe Institute, uh, followed, founded by Robert Monroe, who popularized the whole idea of OBE, or out-of-body experience. And I studied up there with Bill uh, uh, Billman, who I believe is probably the foremost teacher of out-of-body experiences in the world today. And uh, I was up there to take classes and do exercises for a week. We were together, a whole bunch of us, and um, we got to hear each other's stories. And it was just absolutely amazing. I think that the ancestors, the old ones, I think that they were much more in touch with this than we are in this left brain uh, technological world in which we live that's so noisy and so fast that we just can't find the time to meditate and to do what we need to do. Uh, if anybody's interested in following up more on this, you can also read uh, my book, Quantum Akashic Field. And basically what it is is, is a kind of a, a how-to book, how to have an out-of-body experience. And uh, I almost guarantee that if anybody reads that and follows the directions there, you will have an out-of-body experience if you, if you uh, are willing to, to do the work required. But I think it's probably the most important thing that can happen to anybody in their lifetime. Okay. So, um, uh, you were just talking about... Um, some of these similarities um, 
from around the world. Uh, and here, you know, back to the Easter Island mm-hmm. example again. I, obviously, I really like that chapter. But um, it, you, know, you get uh, the Easter egg hunt on Easter Island and, you know, the Easter bunny and, and the <laughs> eggs at, at Easter time. Uh, okay. Well, the, the the one on Easter Island was a totally different tradition, the egg hunt there. Uh, Easter Island was called Easter Island. Actually, it's the, the original name was Rapa Nui. And it was called yeah. Easter Island because it was discovered by Cook, uh, Admiral, uh, Cap- Captain Cook, on Easter okay. Sunday. But the egg hunt there was actually a religious, uh, political thing. Um, mm-hmm. All the different factions would uh, appoint a, a champion, and on one particular day, they would have to uh, swim out this horribly difficult swim out to this island where the, uh, the eggs were laid by these these seabirds. And the one who brought back the egg to his tribe, to his tribal leader, that particular leader was the head of the island for the next year. And it was a, it was kind of like a Super Bowl kind of event. And it could be pretty deadly. But the uh, the other stuff, uh, the Easter egg hunt that we go on and the, the bunnies and the chickens and all that kind of stuff, you know, the baby chicks associated with Easter, that's, that's purely pagan. Christianity just... Uh, Took that over from the pagans. Uh, Easter bunnies and, and and eggs. Easter eggs were fertility symbols, actually. Uh, and uh, the Christian churches kind of adopted them because Easter, uh, Easter is the day of new beginnings and new life, and so they adopted all these things. Uh, the Christian church is very good at baptizing pagan symbols and using them, like Christmas trees and Yule logs and all the rest of the stuff. Yeah, no, it's just it, it, it's just it, it, an interesting observation you made, and I understand. You know, until the 18th century, the Captain Cook, uh, 1770s or so, when Captain yeah. Cook arrived, but it, 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 you know, there is no connection between the, you know the middle, the Holy Land, and Easter Island, but you get the same kind of imagery. Now, that's such that is the key, isn't it? When you say there's no connection, um, perhaps maybe there, there is. Was yeah, yeah, and, uh, and yeah, you do bring up uh, UFOs in, in your lost civilization, yeah. and uh, censoring God. To, you can't rule out that possibility. That's what was yeah, and, fire? and and could there have been a a worldwide civilization? That existed who knows how long ago that uh, fell apart uh, look at the stories of the Atlantis tradition for instance or going back even yeah. farther the uh, the stories of the uh, Indians of the southwest of North America yeah, could there have been a civilization which once just covered the world as we did and the, for whatever reason uh, whether it was a pandemic whether it was a, a comet, whether it was warfare, whether it was starvation, whatever it was, war, uh, whatever it was, that civilization disappeared, but parts of it were preserved in Egypt. Parts of it were preserved in Turkey and Gobekli Tepe. Parts of it were preserved in China or in Sumeria. Parts of it were preserved in the American uh, Southwest or Central America or Mexico. Um 
and are we seeing remnants of that civilization? Uh, for instance, on in places as far apart as Easter Island and Gobekli Tepe and the Egyptian pyramids, uh, and in, in 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 China and Indonesia, are we seeing remnants of a lost civilization that existed so long ago? We have just developed amnesia about it. Uh, it's an interesting speculation, and I think there's evidence. Uh, and it's, it's not just wild speculation. I think there's evidence, uh, and this is what I like to talk about in Lost Civilization so much. I believe there's evidence in stone in all of these megalithic structures that we find around the whole world. But I believe there's also evidence in story, and that's the mythology that comes down to us that all talk about previous civilizations. Uh, just take Egypt, for instance. We all like to take Egypt back six, 7,000 years and say that's when it all began. But Egypt uh, has a tradition of what they call the Zeptepi, or the first time. And mm -hmm. it was written on the walls of, of some of the, uh, uh, the, the great uh, monuments in Egypt that a group of people came in great ships from the west and sailed into Egypt and brought with them the secrets of civilization and taught them. Uh, and they were written on the wall. And, and these were the, the gods of the, Zep, or, or of, of the first time, or the gods of the Zeptepi. And so we have to speculate. Uh, could they have been gods that uh, uh, came from, a, or, or interpreted as gods, rather, that were just a lost civilization that was so technically superior that they seemed to know so much more that mythology later remembered them as gods? Or could they have been um, possibly even you know, gods from another dimension? Uh, I, I don't think we can, we can rule that out. Even in, in, in Christianity, which is probably one of the religions that most wants to say, oh, there's no such thing as entities from another dimension. And yet, don't Christians gather together every Christmas and sing, Angels we have heard on high, or hark the herald angels sing? Um, and what are those? Those are stories about entities who step out of another dimension, into this dimension, and bring uh, news uh, from God. Well, that's a very typical of a shamanic experience, of experiencing these entities. So, I just... I'm not pushing any one of these particular stories, but I am pushing for the idea that we keep our, 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 our minds open and don't just dismiss them out of hand because I think we may find a kernel of truth at the basis of these, uh, of these stories and these songs and these great megalithics, uh, megalithic structures. I think we can find a, uh, a, a kernel of truth that talks about not just religion but history as well. And since we're back to um, Egypt, and you cover that uh, the Horus uh, legend uh, in the Temple of uh, Edfru. I may uh, have Edfru, yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Okay, okay, and you're speculating, uh, you know, when uh, Jesus and his family went to hide out in Egypt, um, yes. 
Yeah, yeah, they weren't there for like a weekend. Yeah, you know, for I uh, no, they were there for years. Yeah, that's right. It, yeah, it, it was an extended uh, period of time. I, I'm sure you know, they had to have seen, uh, yeah, the pyramids. I mean, it just it, it, it's been a tourist attraction. Oh yeah, now, yeah. Even, you know, even if you're on the run, you know, people are still going to. Uh, you know, want want to swing by and see Stonehenge or some, you know something like that while you're in in the area, and yeah, he, he, yeah they may have actually go, um, gone uh, upriver to um, uh, the the, the t- temple of Edfru. Ed, Ed temple of Edfru, yeah, yeah, that was a very yeah. ancient. That was where the uh, the story of the Zeptepi was written on the walls at Edfu. Uh, and it it uh, it's just amazing. As a matter of fact, we even find echoes of that story in in Greek uh, stories as well. When um, Socrates or Plato rather wrote about uh, Atlantis, and he he put the story into the words of Socrates, but it was Plato who wrote it. Um, Plato uh, wrote this great story of Atlantis and these uh, the people who were out in the Atlantic, this great civilization that was destroyed in a day. And he got the story from Solon, who was one of his ancestors. Solon even gave it a date, uh, 12,600 years ago. Uh, in our times, 12,600 years ago. And when Solon said, well, where did you hear about this? To the Egyptians. Solon spent time down in Egypt and said, where did you hear these stories? And they told him aha, that how it, it, it came down to them from these mysterious strangers who appeared. And then they wrote down the stories at Edfu, and there they were. If um, Jesus and Mary and Joseph were actual historical figures, and if they actually uh, left the Holy Land and went over to Egypt, and where Jesus was there for a while, they almost certainly saw the pyramids. Uh, they could have very easily gone down to Edfu and and seen those temples. They were old by that time. I mean, the pyramids are at least six thousand years old. And quite frankly, I think they go back way before that. But even if we take the conservative of just 6,000 years ago, Jesus would have been there 2,000 years ago, so they would have been at least 4,000 years old, and uh, quite frankly, probably a whole lot older with the archaeological evidence we have today. And all of this rich history, this uh, this great mythology that arose in Egypt, um, we tend to forget. We like to think of these people as, as you know, Egypt stayed in Egypt, Egyptian stayed in Egypt, and Israelites stayed in Israel. And, but they didn't. There was a tremendous back and forth. And anybody traveling up to uh, uh, to Rome, for instance, from Egypt, and they did it all the time. If they didn't go by boat, they had to go through Israel. Um, anybody who was going from east to west, they had to go through Israel. Israel was in that natural spot that was right there where uh, east met west and Rome and the north met the south. And all of this yeasty Egyptian mythology came together right there. And uh, the Apostle Paul, who basically put Christianity together. I mean, he was the the first great theologian of Christianity, and his writings compose a third of the New Testament. Uh, He was a very traveled man. We know that he made it to Rome, probably made it all the way to Spain. 
younger, he he know that he he could have very well gone to Egypt, but he would have heard all of these stories. He would have questioned all these people. He was an educated Roman citizen who spoke a couple of languages and wrote in even more. Uh, and all of this story would have come together. And it's amazing when you look at some of these Egyptian texts and read the story of Horus, or when you go to read the Sumerian texts, or when you read even the, the ancient Greek texts, how many of them come together in Christianity. And it causes some people to speculate that perhaps even Christianity uh, is an amalgam of all of these different uh, uh, religions. Mithras, the, the Roman soldier's god, was born uh, at the time of the winter solstice. And he came forth born of a virgin. And he slayed the bull and placed the, 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 the blood was for salvation. And he had a final meal of wine and bread with his disciples. And then he went off to heaven but said, I'll be back. I mean, it sounds like Christianity, doesn't it? Um, and mm -hmm. so when you think about all of these things, it, it it makes us wonder whether everything that we think today, you know, we, we consider old as 6,000 years, but the civilization that we know as our civilization that began at Gobekli Tepe some 8,800 years ago, um, that could very well have been a hand-me-down from a worldwide civilization that existed way before the last Ice Age. And uh, what we are seeing today is separated fragments, uh, misty memories of that great civilization and those great religions. Uh, I think our civilization is a, a, a real new uh, character on the earth, and I think we have inherited an awful lot, but just forgotten what we inherited. We have, in Graham Hancock's words, we are a people with amnesia. Okay. So we have amnesia. Jimmy, there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I thought I got some government agency uh, just disconnected <laughs> me again. But um, okay. So you know, a lot of us modern people have amnesia about eh, the possibility of uh, you know, let's just say Atlantis. Uh, we do not have. Uh, you know, we were not presented a comprehensive text of everything that should be included in the Bible, and you mentioned all the. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's been my mission really for the last ten or twelve years, uh, as I study these things. Um, I'm not trying to push one position. I'm certainly not trying to start a new religion, or I'm I'm certainly not saying that I've got it right and everybody else is wrong. I, that. That's the farthest thing from my mind. What I'm trying to do is bring all of the evidence up so people don't have to just believe and say it's so some kind of mystical, woo-woo, new age thing, you know. There is a lot of evidence out there that has just been trans, uh, just been swept into the dustbin of what I call the conspiracy of silence. There's a lot of evidence out there of former civilizations. There's a lot of evidence out there of interdimensional contact, of extra body, uh, uh, you know, of contact. There's a lot of oh, evidence of possibly ancient uh, beings from other dimensions. The evidence is there. We just have to find a way to get it out to people. And so in my books over the last 10 or 12 years, that's 
that's really what I've been attempting to do. I'm not saying this is the way it happened. I'm just saying let's consider this and see if we can learn something about who we are as people and uh, and what happened. I had a yeah. uh, I, I I love to tell this story and I told it often, but I, it, okay. it needs re, it needs retelling. Uh, I had a good friend whose uh, father died uh, two months before he was born, and the uh, his father died of an illness, and the friend never understood what the illness was. As it turns out, it was an illness that could be passed on uh, generation to generation. So my 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 uh, friend did not inherit it. He did have himself checked out when he finally got the story, but uh, he could have. Um, and he didn't know who his father was. He put together this idea in his mind of who his father was. He got this idea from snippets at family conversations or at dinners or uh, relatives who would tell stories and everything else. And He thought he had a pretty good idea of who his father was. Until years went by, it was just a very few years ago, uh, his his mother was moving out of the house finally that she had lived in her whole life, that he was born and raised in, and he was there to help her. And he went up into the attic, and you can imagine all the stuff up in the attic of a house where somebody has lived that long. He went up into the attic, and in an old trunk that he had never before opened, he opened this trunk, and he found a, a, a series of texts of journals that his father had kept and he found it buried up there in that attic in the trunk. And he was fascinated. He began to read these words that were actually written by his father, a series of journals. Never knew they were there. He learned that his father was nowhere near the same as the person that he had, the, the image that he had built in his own mind. He learned that his father uh, had secret dreams and secret hopes that he never realized. Uh, he learned that his father had hopes for uh for him uh and it was a totally different totally different thing and uh thank goodness he also learned that his father had died of a disease that he could have inherited it uh he didn't but he could have i think about that as a as a great metaphor a symbol of our own society today we don't know who our father is uh, we've put together snippets from this that and the other thing and we've figured that we've got a pretty good idea but when we begin to look at these ancient texts, when we begin to look at uh, the megaliths they left behind, when we begin to look at the true stories of what was there, a whole different uh, planet Earth evolves. Uh, we are, I think, the recipients of a culture that has simply forgotten who our father is, and it's time we get up there in the attic and begin to dig up the journals. And, and read for ourselves and look for ourselves and go to those megalithic structures ourselves and uh, listen to the mythology, listen for what might be there. Uh, I think it could change us as a species overnight. I think we could change. Um, okay, so if you're encouraging us to look at the mythology, you know, we can also look at um let me back up for a second. Um you know, we you know, we've discussed we don't have like a full understanding of Christianity. No, no I, I, we, we don't. I, I got to tell you a story that really explains oh, okay. this. It's the perfect time to put it in. 
okay, a number of years ago, I was in Egypt with a small group of people, and we were going into the uh, the Great Pyramid at Giza. And uh, a, a group of people can't just go in on their own. You have to go in with an Egyptologist. Now, Egyptologists then, as of now, um, have what is is called around the world, it's a doctrine. It's called tombs and tombs only. They believe that the pyramids were built for tombs for the pharaohs, and that was it. There was no other purpose. And they believe they're about 6,000 years old. That's the party line of Egypt. And we just don't, you just don't hear anything about anything else. Well, we're going into this underneath the Great Pyramid, where they have discovered recently, even since I've been there, there have been a whole lot of, uh, of new caverns and new, new places opened up. But we were going down there, and we were going down, bent over, down this long thing, and I was fighting claustrophobia. <laughs> and so we're going down deeper and deeper and deeper, and I was the first one in the line right behind the Egyptologist who was leading the, leading the way in. And as we walked down, we're walking on this wooden platform that they had built, and alongside the wooden platform are these wires. And the purpose of the wires is to uh, light up the lights that went on, motion sensor lights that went on, so that you'd be going into a black hole, but the, as you got closer to it, all of a sudden the lights would come on and light your way down in there. And I began to think about this as I watched those lights come on ahead of us, and I began to wonder, how did they work down here with it before electricity? And so I began to think, well, maybe they had torches. And I looked up at the ceilings, and I looked at the walls, and there was no soot at all. There was no evidence of torches or anything underneath there. And so I said to the Egyptologist who was leading the way down, I was really curious. I said, how do, how do you suppose they saw anything down here? Because, you know, with no electricity. The man actually turned away from me, walked away, and as he walked away, he said, oh, they probably had some kind of light source. What? <laughs> that was his explanation? They had some kind of light source? Of course they had some kind of light source. They had a technology that we can't even imagine. And his way of dealing with it was to pretend it was just nothing. Oh, they had some kind of light source. And that was supposed to answer the question. That, to me, that experience so dumbfounded me that I simply could not believe, and yet I have seen it over and over and over again. We have these questions that can be answered if we get down and really acknowledge them, but so often we don't even acknowledge them because we, it goes against everything we want to believe. We want to say, how could the Egyptians 6,000 years ago have some kind of a light source? Well, there's all kinds of, uh, of uh, you know, hints about this in history. For instance, the Ark of the Covenant was there. Uh, you know, it seems to be some kind of a generator. Um, maybe they had some kind of psychic abilities that we don't have. Maybe they had a technology that is available to us, but we've just simply forgotten all about it. They used to say about Egypt that Egypt could not be more than 6,000 years old because there wasn't a single place in the, in the world that showed that kind of sophistication of, tech, of building technology. That's what they said for years. And then they discovered Gobekli Tepe, which predates the uh, uh, Egyptians' uh, pyramids, but is every bit as grand and every bit as exciting. It predates it by 6,000 years. So right out the window goes this idea that the Egyptians 
couldn't have built this more than 6,000 years ago because nobody had that kind of building technology. Well, they did, right up there in Turkey, uh, on the Fertile Crescent, which isn't that far a journey way away from Egypt. So, uh, my, you know, they, once again, we're coming up with this idea about rather than question these things and bring them out to the light and say, let's try to find these truths, we just bury them because they don't agree with the stuff that we've been teaching all along. Yeah, so, you know, we get a some people uh, um, may have an interpretation of uh, Jesus as he, he, yeah, he, he was just a character in the book. You know, it's re- re- really no different than, uh, and say Ebenezer Scrooge. Or David Copperfield, or something. It just, you know, I just picked the first thing that came to mind. But, um, but if we look at the Shroud of Turin, we might actually have scientific evidence of you know, Jesus was a real person. And you know, uh, you know, Barbara and I did a show with uh, Dr. Andrew Silverman on, on his book on that topic, and, and, and that's a, a really compelling story. It's not a painting. You know, some people say, "Oh, Leonardo painted uh, that." Uh, there's no paint yeah. paint on there. It's like a singe. Yeah, and, well, why, and and why is it a reverse? A reverse image. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, how many people have ever been, you know, survived through history that had those capabilities of kind of coming out of a, a supine position being dead and you're, you're floating and you, like, Zap the fabric around you with an image of your body. You know there really yep. aren't too many people who could do that. So it, it, maybe the shroud actually is proof. Yeah. You know what? You know, what are your interpretations of that? Well, the the shroud is an enigma wrapped in a mystery. Um, it it is a, a fascinating for those people who don't know exactly what the shroud of Turin is. Uh, it's 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 called the Shroud of Turin because it was stored in Turin. Uh, actually, there was another part of it, uh, the napkin. It was called a napkin, or the face cover was stored in a, a different place totally. Um, what it is is this burial shroud. And if you uh, unroll it and look at it, which happens very rarely, it's in uh, you know it's it's stored in Turin, and the Catholic Church will not allow it to be to be you know paraded around or studied too much because they don't want to destroy it. They say the last time it was destro- it was uh, examined was you know not too long ago, uh, and it was examined by some. They had uh, ac- access for about six or eight hours, I think, to it. And they did some very sophisticated uh, tests, not only on the image itself, but also on the cloth to try to determine uh, a pollen. Where did it come from, according to the pollen grains that were there? Where has it been? And what's the history of it? On the shroud itself, it seems to be 
it, at, at first people would try to say, well, it was a very accurate painting of a crucified person. But it isn't paint. It's something else. We don't know what. Uh, it seems to be a photographic image, but in reverse. In other words, when we look at a painting uh, of somebody staring at us uh, out from a painting, our right is actually their left, and our left is actually their right. But in this one, it seems to be a, a, a negative uh, photographic image, so to speak, um, so that it doesn't it, it it isn't a portrait of somebody, but it's an actually a negative reproduction, like you would have if you took a picture and then and then developed it. Uh, there are people who swear that the Shroud of Turin is real, and it's the proof of a crucified man who uh, seems to be Jewish features with a beard, long hair, uh, who seem to have had a, a wound, their blood stains are exactly in the right place uh, on, on the shroud. And uh, it seems, and so there are people who swear that it must be Jesus Christ. And what we are seeing is a uh, an example of, you know, Christ was, according to the Bible, raised bodily from the dead. And whatever power it was, that brought him uh, back from death um, actually imprinted a negative imprint on this shroud. Um, there are those who swear by it. There are those who swear, no, it's a very clever forgery. Then you say, well, how was it forged? Because we know how old it is. I mean, uh, we, we know the, at least how old it is. And there was, even if we take the most conservative uh, estimate of the Middle Ages, it was created in the Middle Ages, whether it was Leonardo da Vinci afterward, after the Middle Ages or even before. Uh, there was no technology that, create, that could create that kind of an image. So uh, there are those who say, you know, it was just a clever forgery, but they can't explain how the forgery was made. Um, and so it's just a great deal of speculation. It also seems to be three-dimensional. Uh, the last time they looked at it, they actually used some of these same camera techniques that's used by uh, NASA to plot uh, indentations and mounds and stuff on the moon or on Mars or something wow. like that. And it seems to be three-dimensional in the sense that if you look at it that way, it, it's a, it, it isn't just a flat painting like a picture would be on a wall or a painting on a wall. It's actually a three-dimensional thing. You can actually see the three-dimensional human body that has encompassed us. So if it's a forgery, it's uh, that's a whole other mystery because nobody can possibly figure out how that thing could have finally you know, come to be. If it isn't a forgery, if it's real, uh, it's not necessarily proof that it was Jesus, but that's the one example we have of uh, a person who was crucified and and uh, mutilated in that particular fashion with the crown of thorns and the blood stains on the forehead and the 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 the, the uh, spear that pierced the side and all that uh, and and the, the hands and feet the the wounds in the hands and feet from the nails uh, if it it certainly seems to be the uh, image of someone who was crucified but again there's just no definitive. Uh, way of, of knowing it and the Catholic Church is not releasing it very often to look at it with the kind of uh, high technology equipment that we have today so it's one of those mysteries that people are still waiting for Jim um, I think for the 
point. Um, nearly hour and three quarters we've been on the air, minus the couple minutes when. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was uh, deemed bad and taken off the air for. <laughs> when you were removed from public consumption. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Um, I'll have to re- repent later, but. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think uh, there is any intention of depreciating any faith. You know, just kind of looking at a lot of things we don't know. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you, you just mentioned mysteries, um, but we don't know. Especially, I don't know a whole lot about uh, a lot of other world religions. You know, it's just more like a smattering. But um, with what we don't know, um, there, you know, there there is an element of you know, mystery and uh, wonder that can still pull you back into kind of search, you know, like you did, you know, maybe fill in the gaps for yourself and, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah maybe write a you know, book like you, you know, the many books you've done to explain to others um, what we, you know, what you found. Um, So how do we um, maintain a faith when we don't have all the answers yet? Two two ways to approach that. Um, The first is a simple way. Uh, I have been a, consider myself to be a Christian for my whole life, 75 years now. I have studied Christianity. I've taught Christianity as well as other world religions. Um, I've taught seminars. I've taught the Bible. Uh, I've read the Bible I don't know how many times. I've taught my way through it I don't know how many times. Um, if Now, granted, I haven't been in inside of a Christian church for 12 years now. Uh, my experience has taken me in other directions, but I still consider myself a Christian. And people say, well, how can you do that? I mean, a lot of Christians obviously would not consider me a Christian, but, you know, that's my home. It's what I'm more familiar with. I think the metaphors of Christianity have done, uh, are, are still the best set of metaphors that I can find to describe the great essential questions that I have about life and death and why we're here. Um, now, does that mean that my brand of Christianity is the same as uh the typical Christianity you're going to find in churches today? No, obviously not. I have a totally different way of looking at it. But people say, has it destroyed your faith? I say, no, absolutely not. If anything, it strengthened it. Uh, I still read the Bible, but of course I also read the Bhagavad Gita, and I also read the uh, the Upanishads, and I read ancient texts from many different religions. Uh, Christianity is just the software that I use, it's becoming harder and harder because, boy, the way the uh, 
Christian churches in the news today doing so many things which are so far apart from what Jesus would have suggested. Uh, I just I, I can't believe what I'm hearing from uh, the religion that I consider my home. So uh, am I happy with Christianity as it's practiced in the world today? Uh, mostly not. Uh, but I still I still consider it my home, and I still study it, and it hasn't destroyed my faith. If anything, it's made it even stronger. Um, I'm not even entirely convinced that Jesus Christ was an historical person. Uh, he may have been an invention of the Apostle Paul. doesn't make any difference to me, because uh, I'm not looking at a, a historical understanding. I'm, I'm looking at the Christianity that opens up the mystery. So that's one way of looking at it. In my own personal experience, it only deepens your faith to study these things. The other thing is, though, that unfortunately a lot of people uh, haven't used the approach that I have found so satisfying. And they have become what I like to call fundamentalists. Now, there are fundamentalists in religion, in Christianity, but there's also fundamentalists uh, in terms of uh, uh, Islam, Shiites and Sunnis. There's fundamentalists in, in Judaism. There's fun, fundamentalists in science. There's fundamentalists in medicine. There's fundamentalists in archaeology. By that I mean a, f a fundamentalist is somebody who wants to gather a series of fundamentals and say, this is what I believe. And they cast it in stone. They cast it in concrete. And it gives their life somehow, it, 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 it surrounds them with comfort. And I think people are afraid to get rid of that particular, uh, that comfort. And so they hold on to it. And the more it's threatened, the more they hold on to it. Uh, and they find people uh, within that fund who, who are very learned people or perhaps who can, who can have, are talented talkers, I like to say, whether they are pastors or whether they are teachers or whatever, uh, imams or priests or rabbis who uh, can can wrap the fundamentals and say this is the truth this this will give your life meaning hold on to it and uh they just don't want to give up because frankly it takes an act of courage to do that i'll never forget when my theology fell apart one night i i was studying the bible in my office and uh i all of a sudden realized what i was doing i wasn't preaching about god anymore i was preaching about a certain interpretation of the bible and i would gather all these proof texts and put them all together and the ones that didn't agree with me i just keep them quiet and it was uh, when that fell apart and i realized what i was doing and i realized uh, how far enmeshed in it was i was i thought i was going to have to leave the ministry i th i thought i was i thought my whole religion had fallen apart but by sticking it out and by continuing the study and continuing the work, uh, I, I moved on from there. So what I would like to see in the world today, in all religions, not just Christianity, but in Judaism and Islam, in Hinduism, uh, which is probably doing it as well as anybody can nowadays, in Buddhism, I would love to see people say, this is the software that I use to plug into the hardware that makes the hardware work. The hardware is God or Manitou, or the source, or Hindus would say Brahman, and uh, uh, all these different things. This is the software that I'm using to access the, so the, the, the hardware. But any software will work 
It's just that the software doesn't agree with each other. You know, if you start to mix and match software, you're going to get commands that are a little bit different. But they all will work. They'll all access the hardware. So what I'm trying to say to people is, if you're a Christian and you read my books and you read these things, don't give it up. Just go into it deeper. Uh, if you're Jewish, the same thing. If you're Hindu, the same thing. If, if you're an atheist, uh, great. Uh, read the books. See if you can... Uh, find a scientific understanding for these, these things. Uh, I think it's just really, really important. Uh, d- does that kind of answer your question? Does that help a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And ho- hopefully it uh, inspires the uh, uh, yeah, the listeners, too. Always, I hope uh, so. I hope so. Um, yeah. on, on my look, website... Look yeah, on, on my website, jimwillis.net, uh, there is a contact page. And, you know, when you know you and I have been talking for almost two hours now, and uh, we've been talking to each other, we know there are people out there listening, but we can't see them. We can't get any feedback from them. So I like to encourage people, uh, if they have any questions or comments or other ways of saying or arguments or anything like that, go to the contact page on uh, jimwillis.net. I would love to hear from you. It lets me know that there are other people out there who are involved in these same kinds of ideas. And uh, who knows, if we can talk to each other and encourage each other, uh, who knows what we can accomplish. Uh, uh, I, I like to say I, I'm, I'm not the one who has the final ideas. All I like to do is try to open the doors and uh, hope that people can go through and find their way. And I've, have, I've had uh, insights from people who have heard these kinds of uh, broadcasts, I've had insights that have really taught me a lot. And if we can talk to each other, it's really an important thing to do, I think. I just noticed in the book of Job, you have the passage, Can You Fathom the Mysteries of God? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know, it's, you know that that uh, passage could, you know, could be yeah that was asking a, you to look a little you know look deeper like you recommended yeah that's uh, Job is is fascinating for those who haven't read the book of Job it's a it's a fascinating book in the uh, in the Hebrew scriptures the Christian Old Testament it's the uh, the story of a man who uh, had his faith in God he was a very rich man and he had families and friends and uh, livestock and a big farm and the whole bit and uh, the story is told that the devil was prowling around the, the earth like a hungry lion looking you know where going to and fro and and uh, God says to Job have you seen my, my servant Job what a faithful person he is and Job says yeah well he's he's faithful because you've given him all this good stuff what about if you take it away and God says well try it so Job <laughs> Job becomes the battleground between good and, and evil, between God and the devil. And the devil takes away his family, and the devil takes away his home, and the devil takes away his possessions, and he's left there just sitting in mourning. And then his three friends come, and oh boy, God protect us from three friends like that, because they're, they're, they're arguing with Job, saying, Job, you've got no more reason to believe in God. He's taken away everything. And Job finally says, you know, uh, 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 in my, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, in oh, I forget the quote now offhand. Um, 
Though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. I know my Redeemer liveth and shall stand upon the earth at the latter days. And Job keeps his faith no matter what. And I know we all have situations like that where sometimes it just seems like the whole world is against us and everything is going wrong. And if we can say, I know that my Redeemer liveth, I know that God is alive, God is real. And if you don't want to use the word God because of all the baggage, use a different word, source of all that is, or Manitou in the Indian uh, version, or Brahman, or how, whatever word you want to use. Uh, when it, when things seem bad, just remember that it's it's uh, if if our if our faith depended on only a, a kind of faith when, that worked only when things went well, what good would it do? Uh, the trick is to find that faith and to find that uh, that insight and to find that motivating force that works when things are going bad. That's that's the real secret. Okay, um, Jim, we're down to about three minutes. Um, do do you want to plug anything? Uh, do you want to do do a quick question, like uh, summarize, uh, encourage people to look into the book uh, Proto Evangelism of James? Um, any of those, uh, probably the easiest the easiest way into them, uh, if they're interested in the lost books of the Bible, uh, the ones that didn't make the final cut. Uh, my most recent book was just released on April <laughs> April Fool's Day of all things. Uh, it's called Censoring God: The History of the Lost Books and Other Excluded Scriptures. It's published by Visible Link Press. Uh, two ways you, you can go right to Amazon and you can find it there, or probably the easiest way is to go to my website. There's five or six different pages of stuff on the website that not only talk a little about some of the things that we've talked about, um, uh, it, it also tells you about some of the upcoming events that I'll be involved in. It has uh, listings of all my books and all the uh, reviews of them, so you can read the reviews, the ones you like and the ones you don't, or the ones that interest you and the ones that don't. And right from the website itself, you can uh, click on any one of those, and it'll take you right to Amazon. Uh, and uh, if, and as I say, if there are any questions or the people want to contact us further, uh, anything that's not answered on the website, please get in touch with me through the contact page. I'd I'd love to hear from you. I really would. Okay. I, uh, yeah, with a minute or so left, and it might not be enough time to really get started on any any new topics. Uh, you know, you're. Well, listen, I'll tell you what, there's one more thing I can plug if you want. Uh, sure. Last, sep last September, uh, I was scheduled to lead a, uh, a touring group Ooh. to Turkey. And we were going to go to uh, ancient sites of Turkey, Gobekli Tepe. We were going to start in Istanbul and everything else. Uh, Dr. Mickey Pistorius was going with me from Ancient Origins, uh, the online website uh, magazine. And uh, because of the pandemic, we couldn't do it. It was put off till this last September. I mean, this coming September. But that 
uh, yeah, that, that we weren't sure what was going to happen over there. Yeah, especially with the political situation over. But right now, uh, that tour has been put off, but it is definitely on for May, and the dates are given on the front page of my website. If anybody's interested in touring. Um, Turkey and these ancient sites, and having uh, you know, for ten days we can have a, these kind of in-depth discussions uh, on the bus and at dinners and lunches and walking down the streets and all this kind of stuff. Um, cool. Uh, Andrew Collins. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with Andrew Collins' work. He's going oh, to look no. in from time to time. He's going to show up at certain times too. Uh, he's going to probably meet us at Gobekli Tepe and certainly meet us at uh, Durin Kuyu and a couple of other places like that. So you'll have a chance to talk to him, too. And uh, all the details are right there on my website. Look at the front page of my website, and it, or events, I guess, on the website. And it'll, uh, in the events page, and it'll uh, show So if anybody's interested in that, be sure to check it out. Okay. Uh, you know, we're about... Uh, 25 seconds Jim I just want to thank you for the wonderful show thanks Barbara for producing it and um, Barbara has a show Friday uh, evening and thank you again Jim and we'll see everyone uh, Friday 